Welcome to Creative Welly, episode 11, Courageous Conversations with Bold Humans. I'm doing my best Barry White impression because I have a wicked cold. My name is DK. I'm your host and founder of Creative Welly. You're listening to the audio podcast of the video podcast, which is produced by John O'Tucker over at Empire Films and hosted by Alex Matthews at X Equals. In this episode, we have Elizabeth McNaughton, co-founder and director of Hummingly, and Rowan Wakefield, CEO and co-founder at Inspiral Dev Academy. In this conversation, we talk about ethics, leadership, mental health, recovery, disasters, learning and education, and everything in between. Enjoy. I've heard you're good at talking. Oh, really? Yeah. Did DK tell you that? No. Oh, that's even worse. He seemed like to suss you out, so right. I stalked you. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm working on a project with Ants Cabral. Oh, right. He's another talker. Yeah, and about the fruits. So, yeah. Very yeah, good. They said that. Good. You'd be a great talking friend. Good. Mm. I'm looking forward to it. I didn't stalk you to that amount of detail, apart from I'm your business, LinkedIn. Didn't find much on YouTube. What you missed was maybe a HBR special ah. that came out very recently. Yeah. HBR. Wow. Let's start there, I think. That'd be a great place to start, because we're all rolling, by the way. Yeah, cool. <laughs> I know, we don't have a proper start. We just get straight into it. So you got the stalking bit as well? Yeah. Like, oh, right. Good all that. That's the fun bit. We'll just yeah, get cool. it in. HBR, how did you get that gig? Did they approach you? Yeah. How cool is that? It was really cool. Um, so MBR are interested in our business and our company story because mm-hmm. 2020 has been a crazy year for us as for everybody else. But uh-huh. when you do disasters, it's kind of even more on point. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been a huge year for us. Yeah. So what was the prep for that? Where did you go? Where did you record it? Um, the... We went to a studio up in Auckland. Okay. Yeah, and so we did it in the studio. And then we had an hour-long interview with one of their reporters. Oh, okay. and Yeah, and then worked through some of our products with mm. her. And mm. she took it home and loved it, right? Because who doesn't need a bit of a boost at the minute? Because mm. yeah. the bit I saw was about 10 minutes, wasn't it? Yeah. In the end. Yeah. They condensed, oh, sorry, they edited it down, all the good bits. Pretty much it was as it, we, yeah. we said it, yeah. So. But it's great validation, right, when you get people like that interested in what you're doing. Yeah, and, definitely. Uh, and this is the whole thing. We want to really scale what we're doing because if you look at our world, you know, people are throwing around, oh, this is unprecedented, this is unprecedented, oh, yeah. and we're just going, hey, this is the new normal, yeah. right? The real emergency here is not COVID, it's the climate emergency. Mm. And we've been picking up after that for years, mm. you know, with disasters. And so... Yeah, we want to scale what we're doing so we can help yeah. loads of people in what is our new normal. Hmm. So disaster recovery is something you've been doing for a while? I'm just a general disaster. Or LinkedIn. You know that? Yeah, career <laughs> in disaster. Your disaster, no, your career is a disaster. <laughs> no, that's wrong. Yeah, career My career disaster. has literally been a series of disasters. There we go. Well, um, you worked for the Red Cross for a while and then did the... Your, Kind of some time in department of the prime deputy, no, prime, prime minister's department of cabinet, <laughs> DPMZST. <laughs> That'll do. Yeah. yeah. So we're we're since 2020, and what's your take on kind of the state of the disaster recovery world, your sector, at the moment? Well, it's in demand. Mm. 
We've been working lots with bushfire affected communities in Australia. But what you're getting is this layering of crises, right? So they have had these incredible bushfires. There have been floods, droughts, and then a pandemic, right? And that's what we're going to see more of. So it's more complex. And, yeah, that's the state of our world. And we've got to adapt and we've got to prepare and we've got to learn how to lead like that. Mm -hmm. And so in a lot of our work, talking to people going, you know, leading through these times of COVID, we're actually saying this is also building your capacity to lead your community, your family, your organisation through tough times Mm. and the kind of world that we're in now. Mm. You know, so as hard as it is, as exhausting as it is, you know, and I mean, 2020 has been awful in loads of ways, but it does, in most cases, grow our capacity. Mm. And that growth is really exciting. Mm. You know, I mean, it can strengthen our relationships. We ask ourselves those really existential questions, right? When we have a threat, we love questions, don't we? Do we do. Yeah. So we start asking ourselves, like, what is most important to me? Mm. What do I need to protect? What do I want my life to be like? Right? And these kind, these kind of questioning moments help us grow, help us change, mm. help us adapt. And that's why we never go back. Right? Mm. We always land somewhere new after a big disruption. Mm. If we were to go back, though, could you exist 100 years ago and how would it be different? Like thinking about 2020 and the fact that we feel like everything is upon us. Is it? Or is it the way in which we live? Is, what, what's different mm. now than 100 years ago? Yeah, so I like this point because you can feel like if you look back over history and at humanity, Mm. we've always had adversity. Mm. You know, it's part of our nature. We're designed to adapt, we're designed to grow, we're designed to lead and confront and find a way forward. It's in our nature. And we've seen that thousands of times. Mm. What's different is climate change. Right? We have never had a large-scale existential threat like this before. And we also don't, you know, there's a lot of science about how it will play out, but I think it's still a surprise to people when they have a massive, massive disaster and then another one layered on that and another one, you know. But it's not a surprise if you look at the science, if you look at the research. Mm-hmm. It's, it's what we are living with now. That is different. You know, this um, impacts every part of life. I was going to ask then, to follow on from that question, in the disaster recovery sector that you've been in for the past mm, years. (coughs) Yes, yeah. Were you always talking about this? Yeah. Right, so it's not not like a last decade has become top. It's always been... Uh, an understood mm-hmm. part of what is happening and going to happen mm-hmm. going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Which, like you look at the IPCC reports, they go back decades and decades. Like right. This is not new information. Yeah. So, go on, no, please. I was just going to ask. I mean, I mean, in, in New Zealand, we we could say in a way that, we, with regard to climate change, we're we're not quite in the face of it like you would say Australia was, where they're you know, obviously seeing huge bushfires and so on. We might have droughts, etc., but Kiribati is obviously hugely impacted by this and they are powerless in, in, in what they can do to, to combat it in a way being so small. But um, 
But when you look at something like, I mean, COVID has affected us and COVID has affected everyone. Do you think climate change and COVID, do you see that connection? And, and I would ask, how, would it, how does climate change affect COVID? And, and, mm. and coping with COVID, how does climate change affect that? The, um, hopefully, oh, so many questions all at once. <laughs> <laughs> Let me have a go at this. <laughs> we believe in you. Uh, thank you. The, um, I think one of our problems, and that's just human nature, is we're really reactive. So mm. until the threat is right on us, we don't yeah. respond. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot of apathy. And maybe, maybe people um, do feel a little bit hopeless um, in the face of these big challenges too. Um, I think in terms of the link between COVID and climate change, um, hopefully, collectively, with our recovery from COVID, we will do it in a way that we build forward better together, right? And we get a sense of what's possible and what can be achieved collectively. Mm -hmm. And we take that motivation, we take that feeling of some measure of success, and we throw that behind the climate change agenda. Mm. This is my hope. It's mm, nice, yeah. For the in, at the individual level, I think with COVID, it's a big wake-up call that we've forgotten how to care for ourselves, and we've seen we see that in our mental health statistics. Mm. We've forgotten to, how to care for our communities, and we see that in people being isolated and lonely. And we've forgotten how to care for our environment. And it's like COVID is like this big wake-up call where we're all sent home to our rooms to think about that. <laughs> and so I hope people are thinking about that. Yeah. And then I hope that they're coming back to, into themselves, asking those questions and just choosing some small things, right? Mm. What's one small thing I can do in my family? What's one small thing in the community? One small thing in the environment? Because a good recovery or a good response to climate change is made up of a million little things mm. by millions of people. And if we can get that motivation going and get people feeling, oh, okay, I'm empowered, I can do something, that is fantastic. And one of our cards, we say that greatness is made up of a million little moments of your best self. Mm. So you don't have to be your best self all the time, but it's about trying to have as many little moments of that and thinking how that can contribute to these bigger, complex things that are facing us in our it's world. Lovely. So I think that's the best I can do on that one yeah. round. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah. You touched on your uh, cards there. For those who don't know, tell us about Humming Lee and what you're doing with the products. Yes, so Hummingly, um, we help people, communities, organisations do stress, uncertainty and disruption, so mm -hmm. kind of on point at the minute. Um, yeah, and so we have a range of products to help people do that. So we have doing well cards to help with well-being and resilience and performance. We have a pandemic pack um, that we made with some fabulous people. Um, Khalid Abdullaya, he is a Sudanese artist in residence in Copenhagen. He did the um, illustrations for us. Um, Bart de Vries is a physio and founder of Limba. He looked at the physical aspects um, of well-being. And my um, co-founder, uh, Jolie Wills, she's a cognitive scientist, so she mm -hmm. looked at the psychology, and I'm a general disaster, I threw a bit of that in, <laughs> and that's a pandemic pack, right? So 30 cards yeah. to help people through this, because we do masterclasses and we keep saying the same things over and over again, and we're like, hang on, we can put this <laughs> in a deck 
to help people right mm. now. So we have that, and also cards for calamity to help people recover after a disaster. So because when we're really stressed, we can't absorb a lot of information. Yeah. Right? You can't, you know, like, it's not like, oh, it's a disaster, I need to read a book now, or a few books, or talk to loads of people, right? So yeah. we talk to 100 uh, crisis leaders around the world, and we said to them, okay, if you could go back to before the crisis, what is the one piece of advice or wisdom you'd give yourself? And we collected all of that and brought that all together with our experience so that people don't have to do that. They just read a card or give a card, mm. right? Or use those cards with their families or at work to really help people through the crises we have now and those to come. Mm. Mm. It's a great nexus point in your career at the moment, it feels like, because it's you've gone through lots of these things and come through and then Humming Leo is what, 18 months old, a year old? Uh, nearly three years old. Shut up, okay. I know, I right? That, then. Time. I know, it flies back. <laughs> um, so it's, it's still in startup mode then? Yeah. And it's kind of like going through a, a thing here and then it's going to broaden out and take over the world and you're going to buy Facebook and things like that. <laughs> I don't think I'd choose Facebook, do you? Yeah, good point. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they're on a TikTok, mm. all the kids are on. Yeah. Exciting times for you. It is. It's been a just huge mm. this year. You know, we've really um, moved a lot into Australia, have distributed in Europe, yeah. and have started in the US. So mm. it's, that's been the difference this year. It's just yeah. really. And you're helping people transition, which is. My transition to bring in this young man. I was wondering what transitions we were talking about. I was thinking transition (laughs) through disasters. Oh, okay. Transition through. And you were helping loads of people transition careers. Oh, that's what you were doing. Very awesome. Which which can be a disaster too for some people. (laughs) Well, in the face of, of, you know, we're, we're, we're starting to train now quite a number of pilots and folks from the tourism sector and chefs. Oh, okay. They've come to the disaster of, of losing a job as well as being in a, in a pandemic, as well as, you know, coping with you know, family, general anxiety and just change. So, yeah, I mean, that's the disaster I'm talking about. Not becoming a software developer, but gotcha. having to change jobs and actually speeding that transition up, being forced into it mm. under often stress, financial pressure and so on. So, well, that was going to be my question as you have a Dev Academy seen a flurry of interest over the last six months or so because of that, but also people re- readdressing, they're kind of asking those big questions. Do I really want to do that job that I've been doing for a while and there's some funky stuff going on? Mm-hmm. Have you seen your numbers go up or interest go up? We have and we've seen a, a new, well, more of that type of person that's, as you say, really sort of stopping to have a bit of a think, you know, mm-hmm. why am I here? What am I doing? And ah, maybe I should just do this thing. Mm. Um, or maybe they're using technology to, as a gateway to things like entrepreneurship. Um, right. Being a bit more in, uh, doing something that they're passionate about, being a bit more in control, I suppose, of their day-to-day work. Maybe they're not going out immediately from Dev Academy to, you know, to start Facebook or whatever they might want to start, but they're going from Dev Academy to back to their jobs, thinking carefully about technology. Maybe they're doing a 50-50 role and they're saying to their employer, I am a software developer and no, can, can, I, can I have more exposure to that mm. environment? So I'm seeing more and more of that. But if I'm honest, there's still a lot of people just flattened by this. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they're traumatized, they're deeply anxious, they're 
going through through that grief trauma response, and mm. that's just tough. You can't really study something like Devocat and be going through that. Of course, yeah. So I often sit down with folks and say, look, um, it'll, it will be okay, but you, to come here, it's going to be traumatic in itself. Yeah. Be sure that you're really ready. Yeah. So yes, we're seeing some wonderfully accomplished people from from displacement, um, you know, being displaced from, from, from COVID coming to us. Mm. But I'd say that there is a number of people that I'm, I'm saying just not right now. Um, so if you were to sum up Dev Academy for... So Dev Academy predominantly works with um, career movers. We are looking to transition amazing people from whatever background you've got, whether you're an 18 year old straight out of school, mm. whether you're a 65 year old primary school teacher, we, we want you type thing and we want to take you through an experience of being a software developer um, and and we focus heavily on, on soft skills or what we call human skills, um, which is what the industry wants. We focus a lot on problem solving and collaboration, again, what industry really asks us to focus on. And we see these folks um, come through our experience um, in a short period of time, only 15 weeks, and the outcome is that they are able to be work ready and find employment. Mm-hmm. And we measure our school on the success of, of people's ability to get work. So we're constantly closing that loop and, mm-hmm. and iterating on what we do so that we're meeting the, the needs and the demands of an industry that's growing and needs talent. And at the moment I looked on your website last night just to get the latest figures because you update it, 86%? Is the yeah, placement? We, yeah. We don't place. So Sorry. people find employment. Mm-hmm. So we won't be recruiters right. and, and industry gotcha. said, no, we don't want you to do the placement side. We want these folks to fend for themselves. Gotcha. But 86% of those who went on the latest courses and now find employment. That's, that's, that's right. So we're seeing, and by employment, I don't mean employment in administrative roles. I mean mm. software development or related roles. So these are technical roles. And some, a very few go into gaming and AI and machine learning, sort of the peripheral of tech. Majority go into, into software development, front or back end uh, in New Zealand. Has that been constant? Because how long is Dev Academy going and what's the kind of we, threshold for success? We've been around years? for six to seven years. We've been yeah. graduating um, software developers for six years now. Um, so we've, we're over 700 graduates. Um, and yeah, it's fairly constant. Um, you know, uh, Kendall Flutie, who's the founder of Banker, mm-hmm. came out of our first cohort and is pretty well known now. It's mm-hmm. New Zealander of the Year and, and her work. Um, you know, Deliver Easy delivers around Wellington, again, founded by an EDA grad. So it's kind of nice to see these folks that have gone into work mm-hmm. and then started businesses as well, which is, which is, I think, something that we always knew would happen. But time flies, right? Like, mm-hmm. It's been six years and now we're seeing these businesses really flourish. It's, and it's 700 beautiful. people as well. Because yeah. you met back in the Inspiral days when it was right. a very An social idea. coalition, in a sense of, yeah. yeah. And I remember you talking back then about this idea that you have around accelerated learning, around mm-hmm. development and or dev, web dev stuff. What was the genesis of the idea though? Can you I, remember? I, yeah, Joshua and I, so the, the, um, the founder of Inspiral and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and my co-founder at, at Dev Academy, um, we were just we were just having real difficulty filling our roles, um, okay. supporting the Inspiral businesses, and we we thought is this a is this a wider issue? Is it just sort of impact businesses? But when we sat down with Leeds within Zero and Trade Me and PowerShop or, or, or Flex as they're called now, now it was huge, mm. and we started to ask some of the 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 owners, you know, how much is this affecting your business? And and the figures that were coming back, it was it was one of the biggest barriers of growth was talent. Mm. 
and we thought, well, if it's affecting us and it's affecting these people, mm. how much is it costing us? Like, what would it look like mm. if we brought in wonderful talent and made that not a barrier? How much of an impact could that make? Because there's so many silver linings to this, right? Like, it is an exquisite livelihood. The amount of privilege you Indeed. have in software yeah. development is well paid, can go anywhere to any industry, you can mm. work remote in a pandemic. We didn't know that at the time, but we now know that that's really relevant. Yeah. Um, these sorts of things, it, it, there's a lot of good stuff in that. Um, you know, it, it can travel. You know, tech travels. So if you're, if you're based in Gisborne and you want to be, um, oh, maybe you want to work for the top four accounting companies, you're probably not going to be working in Gisborne, although maybe right now they're, they're trying to accommodate these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. But tech, yeah, tech can travel and it can travel beautifully, and not just from Gisborne to Wellington or Auckland, but from New Zealand to the world. So we're, we're perfectly placed to do this. Um, we also realized at the time that we're heavily reliant on a primary industry at the bottom right. end of the world. Yeah. You know, how do we become as a country more resilient in the face of any sort of adversity, adversity like a disaster of any kind? But I mean, if we did, and we will see, like when we see severe drought, when we see severe mm. Um, you know, situations like this, I'd like for us to have other strings to our bow than tourism and, and, and dairy, meat and logs, you know. Uh, great industries that have grown in this country, but sure, it's kind of important now to, to put our eggs in a few more baskets. Um, and, and look, if we want to raise the, um, the equity status of, of, of Aotearoa, then I think digital's got a better role to play than forestry farming and, and milk. So there were a number of linings there, but yeah. from the start we, we said, okay, we sat down and we asked a simple question, what makes a good developer a great one? We talked to 40 hiring managers and what came back was unanimously, it was your soft skills, your ability oh, to learn, okay. your passion and tech, it had nothing to do with coding. In fact, often managers would say, oh, we'll teach them that, oh, don't worry about that, just get okay. them ready to be able to learn, collaborate, be passionate about what they want to do and, and being able to contribute. And I said, oh, look, I just, I just... I think, are you sure? Because <laughs> we, we kind of thought that was more the impact sort of work yeah. that, that we wanted to do because we were all about making the world a better place. But actually, every person we talked to said, no, we're really like, our headaches come from people not being able to work with each other. Mm. So we really pushed that, that hugely. And, and again, things like diversity came up frequently. If you're going to do it, make sure you bring us candidates that we don't see, that think differently, that look differently, mm. that have different backgrounds, because our software gets used by everyone, yet it's most often built by a smaller group of society. So, you know, if you can open that up, that would be helpful. Um, so, yeah, and again, regional development and so on. And the last thing is, is that we started because the education system wasn't serving us. Uh. Yeah. And that was the key as well. Like, I would love to have not existed. The first place we went were our universities, and they, um, they just weren't incentivized to change. They were paid to get people to degree level. They still are. There is no incentive for a university or a polytechnic, as far as I can see, to get people prepared for work. So that's why we exist. We're really focused on that. But you're accredited, right? We are. It's not like just a, a jolly little 15-weeker. <laughs> no. And you get a rubber stamp and away you go and we taught you to play nice with others. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you're properly accredited. How, how do you go about getting accreditation? Because I can imagine that's probably one of the biggest hurdles. Accreditation was massive for us. Yeah. So we were outside of the system, free to do whatever we liked. But we realized that we were training people that had the cash or had access to it. And a huge number of our, our prospective students were not being uh, serviced, not being met. You know, they, just, they just weren't able to afford it. So we sat down with, with NZQA, who was the regulator, and said, hey, this is what we're about. And, and um, over some time, they said, yep, 
we think you've got the credibility, come through our system, we'll, you'll have to sign up to all the checks and balances, the, the, the rules, the regulations and so on, um, but if, you can, if you're up for that then we'd like to, to, to see you pass through that process. And then from the TEC perspective, which is the procurer of education in New Zealand, they then said, look, if you're providing these outcomes, we'd like to procure this amount. And, and we've been in that system now coming up three years. Mm. Um, and, yeah, we've gone from strength to strength. I wouldn't say we, we, we don't value hugely degrees or diplomas and these sorts of things. What we value from the formalities of regulation is the fact that we've got a bit more credibility. But we already had that from the sector. Mm. But it's just the lowering of financial barrier for people, and that was huge. Because and they are subsidised, is that...? Because you can get a student loan and allowance to come to us right now, yeah. so you can effectively get um, a cheap loan, or the cheapest loan in the country, to be able to access education, and that means we see many people that would have had financial barriers mm. if that's paid out of their own pocket come to see us and inevitably go out and find work at the end of it. Fantastic. Yeah. And how long, how long have um, you been going in this situation? Because I know you opened up another space. Yeah, so it wasn't just in Wellington, was it? That's right. No, no. We, we started Auckland in, in mid-2016. Right, And yes. um, we started a virtual campus six months ago. So you can... In reaction to COVID, obviously. Well, we all or went remote. It? And yeah. we, the thing, that big part about our program is teaching the soft skills or the human skills. And we just weren't sure if we could do that online. And we've done two cohorts. We're into our, finishing our second cohort now. And we're blown away with how well we can transition to that remote environment. That right? And still be able to bring out these human skills. I wouldn't say it's the same experience, yeah. but I would say that these people come out being able to work remotely really, really well, which is something we've seen a huge amount of value in. Now, I'll preface that with the difference between working remotely and onboarding remotely is worlds apart. For us to have a job for two years and then start to go remote because you have to, that's not too hard. You know, you have to have the tools and the rapport and the, okay, and the strength. Yeah. But coming into an organization and onboarding yeah. remotely, that's actually really hard. And I haven't seen many people do that very well. Shopify are probably a you know, Canadian-based uh -huh. um, company that exclusively works remotely. Yeah. They are experts in it because they have to have been. But if you haven't been good at it, I wouldn't say that you're naturally good at it. It's hard to do well. Yeah, there's not many remote-first companies out there. People like many. GitLab or something yeah. who did start yeah. remote first. Yeah. But you're right, that onboarding is such a personal thing. Usually it's just, we just fold up back in an hour. That's right. That's it's right. It's not that funky anyway. And talk but... to these two people next to you, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. But if you can't, yeah. I mean, it's actually hard. Yeah. Like, yeah, mm. it is really hard. I wouldn't underestimate that. Sorry, I thought you had a yeah. question. Oh, I do. Now, just thinking about technology, you know, it can be a gift or a curse mm. in our society or in the world. So mm. what are the kind of values that you teach and you take these people through so they deliver it tech in the best way mm. going forward? It's a good question. What, is the, what are the ethics of technology? Yeah. Because we can see the dark side, right? Like you can very quickly see, mm. you know, the great hack and the role in which technology played in, in that environment. Um, we, we don't have, for example, an ethics stream, but we we are very cognizant and intentional around our own culture. A lot of what we teach is led by example. So what we teach to our students around self-care and well-being, we practice in ourselves. 
what we teach around ethics and where a line is in the sand, we practice ourselves. And a lot of it comes down to storytelling, using examples, choosing how to communicate, how to, to, to deliver things. But also, it doesn't just come from us. So there's a huge amount of openness in our cohorts, of which are small groups of people between 14 and sort of 20 people. And first, we're inviting this eclectic and diverse a group of people together to say, don't conform. Most education says, come, come in, we'll teach you everything, pass a test and walk out the door. Mm -hmm. There's a huge amount of, you need to conform with the way we think, what we value, what we measure. So we say, don't do that. First, we are asking people to step into their identity as much as they can, to first build them up, to see them um, step into the strength and, and, and what, what's, come, what's come to bring them to this point and recognize that. And then to start to become familiar and strong in their own selves so that they can then start to collaborate. And collaborate in a way that is not uh, in a hierarchical sort of way or a conformative type way, but in a way in which they can have beliefs and ideas and safely navigate that with someone else that clearly has their beliefs and ideas. And that from that, they have an enriched sort of relationship rather than often quite a dominance. There's usually a dominance submissive relationship or there's some form of power. Um, and usually the people that come out on top of that um, look a bit like DK and myself and everyone else um, is at different rungs from, from lower to that. So the way in which we create an environment opens that up for a diverse range of stories. And we really take that seriously. We really take the fact that it's not us delivering this education. It's us coming through a learning experience to learn from each other. Every cohort has its different flavor. Um, and what we noticed, and something that I wasn't aware of, is that what happens as people come through our program is a little bit of that ethics, ethos, our philosophy sort of comes off onto people. So what we pay attention to, as I said, was intentional. And what we pay attention to tends to sort of come off onto, onto other people. So we're seeing a much higher rate of people with, the, with an awareness of things like diversity, allyship, um, an awareness of conflict and, and mitigation of that conflict. Um, as opposed, you know, we see more awareness, uh, um, we see more of a relationship with compassion than with tolerance, for example. Tolerance is such a demeaning thing. I will tolerate you. That's what parents do to bad behavior children, mm. right? But compassion and kindness, that's different. That's a very different relationship. And we go to grow together in that. And whereas, whereas so these sorts of things mm -hmm. we notice more and more. Mm -hmm. um, we have been thinking about, in fact, industry is asking us more for these things like ethics, and particularly mm -hmm. in Aotearoa under Tatiriti, um, you know, bicultural ethics, mm -hmm. what we do with information, how we deliver technology, understanding te Māori and how we, mm -hmm. how we may, well how we actually acknowledge tatiriti and tangata whenua through the technology that we build. These sorts of things are things that we, we're really thinking about more structure around those things. Um, recently I've had a, a, a quite a, a, um, a challenging conversation in that, having that difficult conversation of, of owning the diversity problems that we have in tech mm. and understanding that it's, it's, we talk about this far too much, but we don't try and act things and, and, and make change there. So really pushing yeah. those boundaries. I feel I'm talking too much. No, no, no. You've, no, this is interesting because mm. with diversity also comes diversity of thought. Mm. And so in the humanitarian world, it's um, 
the principles are very clear, the code of con conducts are very clear, right? The first one being do no harm. Mm. Right. Right. And so as you're you know, working in the sector, as you're studying, as you're learning, these things are ingrained in you, right? And it's so um, deep in you that you think of these principles to guide any action mm. going forward with that beautiful overarching one to do no harm. And so I was just thinking in terms of tech, like who would you put around the table in terms of diversity of thought? It may be an, an ethicist, it may be, you know, who would you put around there to go, okay, well, what are our principles as tech developers who actually do have a big role now in shaping our world? And who needs to sit at the table to bring the diversity of thought to make those principles the most powerful and on point for our world going forward? That was just what was going through my head when you were talking. Yeah. Yeah. But it's an evolving discussion, right? Because only a couple of years ago did I hear the phrase data sovereignty mm. Mm. Um, together. I know the two words separate, but mm. together it's like, oh, that's interesting. But now I've understood it deeper. And it's like, yeah, that's uh, um, just like privacy times two, because now we're thinking about the cultural impact of privacy, not just an individual one. It's a broadened idea about the sovereignty of data relating to our cultural boundaries in that regards. And it's just like fascinating. I don't know where to go with that. And it's, I don't know the answer, but it's brilliant. It's being discussed uh, at that level. And I don't know if you've had conversations about data sovereignty, especially with the treaty uh, that you brought up and that's been discussed in lots of different areas. What's your take on that? Uh, it's a complex issue. I, mm. I, I, I was um, lucky enough to hear a wonderful discussion at NetHui, uh, not this re most recent one, but the one before, um, delivered by a, a great sort of group of people. But what came out of it for me was um, a, a number of things, is that you, you, you mentioned the, the, you know, who are the people around that table? And what came out of this discussion was the fact that um, the people creating our online environment are not diverse. Mm. Therefore, if we actually create diversity in our builders, our architects, in the people that we entrust to create our environments and that we trust to treat with ethics, respect, with sovereignty over mm. the data that's collected, um, then um, we've got work to do. We really mm. do, um, because right now uh, there is there is clearly a, not a representation in our demographic in Aotearoa mm. that are that are building our software. Um, I also one of the other interesting aspects that I'm not sh that at the time felt a little bit like a red herring, although I'm finding out more about it is decentralized computing, and okay. and the fact that. Um, there is no single source of <clears throat> someone having the information, but actually a distributed source that we all have the same information, and it's it's all in fact only to a certain level. Like that 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 real um, the information that makes fa Facebook so valuable that is, it sits as hidden as possible mm. in a way through decentralized computing. And what we all get is the more generic aspects. I think what you call that global. Or, or that more um, macro sort of view across things, but in a, in a unanimous sort of way. Um, but no, I, I think that's actually a really important one. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm up for that discussion. That I, I, I like the gnarly ones, right? Like the ethics yeah. of, of this sort of I stuff. I don't know the answers. <laughs> no. But it's interesting to explore because, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, with the idea of data now being 
sold, mm. being commodified, wrapped up into a bow, and then going, that's you. Mm. And even the algorithms, which are now steering what is being given back to us as mm. well, mm. which, as we know, have a lot of uh, questions around that, but straight away can serve you some weird stuff. Uh, right through to, say, 25 years' time, when you apply for health insurance, and they say, hey, you can't get this because in 1997, you Google gonorrhea. So therefore, you know, we think that you're a bit loose and we can't. And it's, you might have Googled that to spell it. Because it's one of those words. On behalf of a friend. You know what I mean? Anything that you do online can be that. And the sovereignty of that is really important. Just like water. Like what, mm. what, is, the, um, what is the importance of it? It's great importance. Um, and especially I think New Zealanders can be a leader in that space. Mm. To, of that discourse and then that lead the world. Because, you know, talking about the challenges facing our world, disasters, climate mm. change, all of these things, where we need to be collective in our action. But then if tech through Facebook and other means is creating division, mm. right, that is a force against where we need to go collectively, potentially, Brilliant, or yeah. it could be a force to bring us together for collective action to move forward, right? So how do we influence that? Mm. How, does, how do I, who am not particularly tech savvy, but how, how do I influence that agenda? How does my company influence that agenda? Mm. So that we can get to that collective action that is required in our world at the moment, mm. when we seem to be just going the other Good way, question. driven a lot by tech. Mm. How do we deal with that? Mm. Don't know. The but question. again, another hairy problem. Yeah. Yeah. But I've noticed in both your just brief chats, you both used the word collaboration, but in different contexts. You meant it on a very individual level, teaching as a skill base, as a set of principles or values and stuff, and you used it in a context of disaster recovery. I'm interested in a model of collaborations that you both use and how similar they are or how different they are, right? Because what would you say you teach? How do you teach collaboration, we, and what does it look like? Yeah, we, we've we've um, we've followed our noses at the start. Uh -huh. So a lot of what Inspiral Dev Academy came out of Inspiral, mm -hmm. the wider network. A lot of the work that was being done there was around how do we impact the world through building impact-based businesses. Mm -hmm. But we're also looking at the world out there used command and control, man-based executive tools, all these sorts of things. So we weren't just focusing our efforts on solving problems, we were also trying to solve some of the problems of how we work better together. So there were a lot of exchanging of notes, a lot of people that had been into different environments and gone, oh, that was tough, this was good, bringing the good together and trying some of these things out. And we built on that as well. So we. We had a number of people from the network contributing to how we started, and again, we started a stream of, of working better together as well, and we've, we've done some outlandish things that haven't worked and, and actually harmed us and, and, and been really, really tough, mm -hmm. and we've done some great things that have stuck, and we've carried them on. So we, we started off by doing what worked for us, but also we, um, we collaborated with a, another school over in the States um, called Dev Bootcamp, and they, they had done a lot of work on this, and that brought in a number right. of philosophies from the different readings and so on, and they built a, what they called a, um, a, a sort of a soft skills curriculum. Um, and we, we sort of built on that. But when, you come, when it comes down to it, it's, it's just about doing it, evaluating it, looking back, 
and then doing it again. Now we've done 75 cohorts. Wow. So 75 can, you know, iterative cycles. And we go back out to industry, what worked, what didn't, what's on top for you, mm. and we bring it back. And there's that constant growth. And we're always challenging ourselves. We're always trying to prod and poke ourselves into what's working well and what's not. So we've got this just this constant learning of, of what we do. And I've just found that it's, it's, yeah, that's landed us to where we are now. And we focus on skills. We don't focus on holacracy or teal or these, but we bring what are the skills that sit behind us? Right. Because different things work for different environments, for different cultures, but if you can grow the skills of feedback, having a difficult conversation, understanding privilege, understanding allyship, then any of these things become much, much better tools and frameworks and so on if you've grown into that yourselves. So you're almost placing the bricks in the wall when the wall is then collaboration versus collaboration is this and this is what we teach. That's right. Okay, I like those elements that you just brought there. Mm. Is it the same for you guys in a disaster recovery Um, space? Because you mentioned that to be successful there you must collaborate to get through disasters. Absolutely. Many of the elements. I think to recover from a disaster, or like any complex problem really, you Mm. need to work as a system, right? And we're really good at working, you know, as an agency or as a sector, right? But it gets uncomfortable when we need to work with people who have different lingo to us, who have a different education, a different worldview, all of these things, right? So you have to figure out how to bring sectors, people together so you can operate as a system so that you can solve systemic problems. And how to do this simply, well, the way that there is no simple way, but (laughs) personally, I think, and I look at my address book and my phone and think, how resilient is my address book, right? Like, who do I know in here who um, represent different sectors from different ministries, different agencies, right? Who in here has political connections? Who in here has media connections? Who in here, you know, is um, an international thought leaders that I can draw on here, right? So, you know, who are my support crew here <laughs> who are going to keep me sane and help me with my well-being in here? Where's my personal board for my resilience and well-being in here? And so how resilient is your address book would be, for me, the biggest tool that you have and that you can prepare for anything that comes along. Mm. So personally, that's how I look at it. Um, I think in terms of collaboration, um, you know, and bringing diverse sectors and thinkers together, the, um, (laughs) what I'm reminded of um, with the Christchurch earthquakes, we, put the Red Cross recovery team in with the horizontal infrastructure rebuild team, so engineers and designers. Okay. And we thought, okay, we've got very different skill sets here. Mm. What could we achieve together with a noble purpose? Um, and so moving in together was the first step. Then we had an intentional design <laughs> process. Then we had these things, you know, that would happen over the dishwasher, right? Like you, you stack the dishwasher and then an engineer comes behind you and kind of looks at you and restacks it, you know, <laughs> or asks, why, why do you always have food with meetings and why can you never stick to the meeting time on the, on the room, right? It's about learning about each other. And I yeah. think if you're really going to get at the gnarly pieces 
of collaboration. You have to be prepared to be on each other's learning edges. Mm. And what this means is frustrating the hell out of each other and knowing it's part of the process and sticking with it long enough to be able to then start to see it from each other's perspective and then to get the gold from that. So coming back to that story, you know, really amazing things and better outcomes from the community came from that because we had the social and built environments working together in a practical way. So it is possible, that's just two environments, but we need to work and think more systemically to solve our problems and collaboration is 100% the key and it can start with you and your address book, Mm -hmm. I think is how I would sum it up. But loving collaborations so much at the moment. Um, I'm part of the Edmund Hillary Fellowship. Yeah, you are. Which is just like fantastic for collaborations. Um, loving it. So um, we have been working on one. Do you want to hear about it? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> it's, it's called um, Better Box 2021. Okay. Yeah. And so basically it's um, a collaboration between Hummingly yes. and Limba. Bart de Vries mm. and Ants Cabral, right? And his new book, um, Don't Sit Down and Read This Book. <laughs> it's that amazing. That's yeah. what it's called. Right. That's what okay. it's called. But, you know, it's wonderful mindfulness practices, mm. things for your mind without jargon, without buzzwords, beautifully illustrated. A limbo store to create space, yeah. the optimal yes. space for you physically to um, go through our pandemic pack, go through Ant's book and create some space for you to do the work, to have the tools, Mm. to have a better 2021. Um, And then a whole bunch of our collective knowledge and online content to Mm. go with it. So that we just want to set people up for a better 2021. Yeah. better box 2021. So that's the latest collaboration, but it's just been so fun putting it together. So the EHF, as I understand it, might be the last cohort, right? You've snuck in in the last, <laughs> last, last kind of the group into the club, quite rightly, before the, the rope comes across. The rope comes across and the parties really gets started. Really gets going because you're there. It's fascinating what those guys have done. And looking at the, that cohort, we just had Bron Thompson in here earlier on uh, from Springload. Uh, she's part of your cohort as well. Don't know if you've connected with her yet, but you will be. Nice lady. I look forward to it. Um, but you've got some really impressive people who have gone through there. Yeah. And they're your neighbours, right? Sort of. Yeah, yeah. yeah Across true. the valley. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. But, um, and exciting too that it feels like we've got these amazing minds and ideas all coming and focusing mm. on New Zealand. You know, normally we have to go places, right? <laughs> no and people they're coming actually here. coming here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, For lots of different reasons now, probably. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we got a lot more popular recently. I, I think so. I mean, yeah, we're the cool kids in the playground now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we are, <laughs> which is fascinating to see. Um, so I wanted to ask you, you got, sorry, did you have... Well, it's, I was also going to say, like, one of the things is it's not something to measure now, right? Like... It's, it's as you say, it's those collaborations over time. It's, it's seeing what comes out. And, and like, like producing graduates into the, into the tech market, it's one thing to say, oh, yep, we did something for that individual and, and for the tech sector. But in 10 years' time, when you see another 100 companies come out, that's when it's different. And to see the, what's going to come from those fellows and the collaboration and mm. focusing on NZ and NZ Inc., looking at the world, I'm like, that's exciting. 
I'm really excited. And, um, and I think, yeah, just watch the space as well. With, with yeah. Foundational pieces of work, right, with longevity. That's right. That's right. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it comes back to your great point before, you know, about what is it that New Zealand exports. And been thinking, you know, the New Zealand government, Jacinda in particular, has a real reputation, right, for crisis leadership, for well-being, yeah. for mm. kindness. And, you know, there are, you know, Hummingly is just one of a number of really cool New Zealand startups working in this space, mm. you know, and I'm thinking, okay, how do we maximise that as an export? Because those things are so in demand, right? And how do we, as New Zealand Inc., actually utilise that, leverage that Excellent. to help people, yeah. to help the world and where it's at right now, mm. um, but also to grow our economy in different ways. Mm. Um, what I found fascinating is about three years ago, I think now, um, both Jacinda Ardern and Donald Trump spoke at the UN something. They, they were both on, but they were, yeah. one was on one day, one was on the other day. I think Donald Trump was first and then John, Jacinda was the next day. And of course, the majority of news coverage was about Donald Trump and his MAGA kind of approach and his kind of very American-centric approach. But what was lovely is that The Guardian newspaper in the UK came out with a little video which compared and contrasted both Jacinda's opening words and Donald Trump's opening words and a couple of other snippets throughout. So yeah, Donald Trump straight away going, you're to talk about America and how great and we're putting American first and means we're getting out of NATO, we're getting out of the who, we're getting, you know, it's about taking back control and all that other stuff. And then her opening lines was, if I could sum up New Zealand in a word, it'd be kind. And it was just like, okay, this is different. <laughs> but then fast forward three years in the middle of a COVID pandemic, you're seeing it lived and in action. Mm -hmm. Those, you know, not just words now on a political stage. And the differences allow them to really converge in terms of the pathways to go in opposite directions. But you're also seeing the opposite impact in a, in a kind of a country and a nation of, you know, a, a leader who is not just transparent and open and thinks kindness is, and compassion is a cool thing and could have been said, well, that's just politics, that's just words, but now living it, you know, in her not just speeches, but in policies, like think about the, the shooting and how quick it was to turn around and make policy changes with guns. And then boom, COVID, our, the best economic response is a health response. And all these words, a team of five million and all these other stuff. Do you think that she's just done um, a kind of a masterclass in crisis communication? I think it comes back to those principles right. that I was talking about before mm. that um, guide every action, that mm. help you make decisions when the decisions are really hard, yeah. that are understood by everyone working with you so they know why you make decisions the way you do, you know? what underlines mm. your decision-making. Oh, it's those principles. And I think um, that has been what we have seen, right? Yeah. Like that collective understanding of those principles and those values. Um, yeah. Were you really watching powerful. from afar over the last seven months or so and going, yep, that's that formula, that's that one done, and now that one done? And, like what, or, or was it anything that you would be also critical of or, or at least deconstructing from a perspective, oh, I wish she had just done that. That would have really amplified X. 
I think what I've been watching is, you know, we've had so many disasters in a short period of time in the last three years. So, you know, you, you think back, you know, we've had measles outbreak, we've had um, Fakari White Island, we've mm. had mosque shootings, mm-hmm. we've had COVID, you know, various floods and all sorts of things around the country. And so what that does is that puts a lot of continual pressure on the system. Yeah. And, what, and people are exhausted from this constant mm. response. And so, especially say in the health system. And so you think, actually, what we want to see out of all of this is that these leaders who now have so much experience, not Mm. just within government, but across all of the agencies in communities, actually grow from this experience. Because what Mm. can happen is you can grow from these kind of leadership challenges, or you can be damaged by them and you can burn out. And so what we want to do is tip it towards growth, you know, so that we have a leadership cohort within our country that is, has great capacity and is ready for what is next mm. because each event grows our capacity for the next one. If mm. you're balanced towards growth, not damage, and if you have the tools and strategies in place to manage your well-being, and if, um, yeah, and... and Otherwise, we can lose a lot of these amazing people. Mm. And so as I've been watching, (laughs) this is what I've been worried about, is that our leaders, whether they're in communities or government, don't have enough recovery time Mm. to prepare for the next one. And the thing is, we're in the thick of COVID now, and that's all we're thinking about. But there are other issues and crises on the horizon. Climate change is the big one, right? Huge one, right? Mm. And so we, if, if our focus is so on these immediate things that can take our gaze away from the horizon, yeah. and we can burn ourselves out and not be prepared for that long game. So right. that, that have been kind of the thoughts that have been in my head. I'm also interested in kind of them, your learnings from your time in the Department of Prime Minister Cabinet thing. Because <laughs> you were, from recollection, you were there to kind of, uh, as a legacy role, to learn from the Canterbury earthquakes yeah. and take that learning into some kind of cohesiveness and feed it back into the system and go, hey, you know, that happened, this is what we learned, and let's make sure that that all fits on the growth side of what you were saying, that pendulum, right? Do you think that that there's a need for that in this time around COVID and especially not just now for New Zealand, but hey, the world, you know, we kind of not got it right, but we got it half right and righter, if that's a word, than most other countries in the world. Like, do you see that happening in the moment or is it people are still too busy with it? Um, I would love that to happen. Mm. And because, and you'll know a lot of this from your organisational work, it's about the culture within a department, within an organisation, and how open they are to learning. Because ideally you want a learning organisation, but Mm. you know, what gets in the way a lot of the time is people um, don't, they're afraid to perhaps admit to certain things or don't have the courage to um, put themselves out there or there's a culture of blame, so it won't be seen as learning. It will be seen as, mm. oh, it was your fault. The other thing with disasters yeah. is that it all looks easier, or people always have um, ideas on how it could be better with hindsight. And so what we teach leaders is that actually, you know, 
this mantra, you did the best you could with the information and what you had at the time. Right? And just keep that running through your head because there, you know, there will be those moments where there is blame, where there is intense pressure, where there is media pressure. But what I would love to see um, is that learning culture embraced so that we can better prepare for everything coming next mm. and that becomes normalised. But that takes a great, um, that in itself is a great act of leadership because you're very open, you're very vulnerable, and it means you've created an amazing culture mm. where learning is um, one of the principles mm. that guides everything that you do. So we have a long, I think we have a way to go, um, but that's aspiration. It's almost like people who you deal with in your sector are forced to learn, whereas people in your industry come to learn they're hungrier or at least they're open very quickly to transition whereas you're forced to transition in some of the yeah we're still not very good at learning though from disasters right okay yeah (laughs) just to be clear right like it there are there are processes and things in place but Mm -hmm. on the whole there's a lot more that needs to be done um, so I just wanted to say that before yeah, you jumped yeah. in. Mm. I mean, in any political environment, <laughs> it's exceedingly hard to learn mm-hmm. because a big part of learning is creating vulnerability, owning your mistakes, mm-hmm. storytelling about that failure so that you can learn and take that from your shoulders to put it out there and yeah. for us all to commiserate mm-hmm. and learn from it and move on. Whenever have you seen a politician say, look, I cocked up, I'm sorry, let's never do that again. The moment the All Blacks lose two games, who's getting fired? It's mm, like mm, that mentality. I'm like, example. there's a beautiful reporter on from the Argentinian team saying, "I don't. Why are we talking about firing? Um, he's going to be great. He's just learnt two really good lessons. <laughs> Give it time. Exactly. You know, I, I often tell stories of failures have been some of the most rich times in our environment mm. um, because I've had people around to take care of me, to take care of Dev Academy, and for us to learn from there mm. and. And wow, we, 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 we have rich, rich times like this. So I think, I think it's, it, you, you, I mean, that's a really hard topic. We're talking about a crisis here yeah. of, of, of a national scale, all of those crises you mentioned. And, but we're lucky that um, the way in which um, our current government has approached them, particularly uh, the leadership in that current government, has been with care and considered, yeah. and they've got it right. But what would have been... I mean, what's interesting in any situation like this is to see how a government can learn safely. Mm-hmm. I'd really like, I mean, our opposition is classified as holding the government to account. Mm. Um, I'm not sure, I'd like to move past that, to be honest. Mm. I mean, what's it like to have an opposition that you can collaborate with? Um, I'm not, I'm, I'm not That's sure. That's right, I've never thought about that, dude. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm yeah. not, well, I'm not sure our system even allows it. I think the way in which it's done is that you have to play a position of holding your opposition to account. But um, and I know select committees are made up of, of, of you know, mm-hmm. many governments and so on. But what's it like when the two finance ministers from each side sit down and say, "Hey, this is my plan," and they say, "What about this?" Well, no, I don't really want yeah, to do this. Or, well, well that's, thank you for that. Yeah, I never yeah. thought about that. Yeah, and and you know, surely that would you know, we we could find some way to make that work. Mm. And, you know, the, the powers that be will, will find many holes in that. But if we had that as a North Star to focus on, I, I yeah. could see us in some time, um, you know, inventing a new model that works for us um, that actually isn't as, as... And this is destructive, this this 
non-failure. I mean, mm-hmm. we see it in our government departments, you know. We talk about, I mean, in tech you see it a lot, the amount of expenditure there and the mistakes that get made over and over again is, is mm-hmm. oh, it's criminal, you know. But if, in tech as well, you have language and sandbox ideas, you know, sure. places where you go and muck stuff up and refix and get it. And then you've also got open source, right, sure. where there's a, an open community of people saying, well, here's my attempt, mm. what do you think? And everybody goes, oh, if I plug oh, thank you, yeah. So, and I think maybe what about an open source idea of, of governing sure. then, and leadership? Yeah, sure. Well, that's a, that's a good concept too, because then when you talk about software, often there's that commercial focus, what is the commercial yeah. viability of it? But politics, kind of the commercial value of politics is your, what is it, your constituents, you know, mm-hmm. having the percentage of the vote. Um, uh, you know, maybe it could work in somewhere like New Zealand where we're fairly centrist in, 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 yeah. in our views and something. I, don't, I just don't And know. have more than two parties as well. Yeah, yeah, we do. There is, there is possibility there. Mm. Might drop that one. No, <laughs> thank you for coming back. <laughs> Dude, I've never thought about that, even that language of the, the opposition. And in America, I know they see the media as a combative kind of mm. entity. Mm. And I don't think that's a bad thing. They have a combatorial kind of system where, yeah, you push against me, I'll push back and stuff. Straight away, that's probably not the most healthiest mm. thing unless you're training to be an all black. You know, you've got to have some tension back in, in a big way. But sometimes you also need kind of maybe compassion and lightness back mm. to help mm. you evolve yeah. your ideas, your thinking, and stuff like that. Fascinating. Mm. Mm. I never thought about that. I want, I want the ministers to sit together now around here. I'm yeah, going to get yeah. them in. Yeah, you should. That'd be good. That'd be a really interesting session. Uh-huh. Yeah, find something you agree on, that classic case. What I've found in our organisation is one of the biggest catalysts for leadership has been to talk about failure, actually. Mm. Um, and um, I, I, I'm pretty frequently talking about mistakes I've made and what I've learned from it. And what I've noticed is that the moment I role model that, others will, will do the same. And we do have a culture of learning at Dev Academy because we're in that environment. Mm. But it's beautiful to see that that's a very natural part of people's processes. Mm. And not, not just at our executive or, and in, in in inevitably there are power structures at Dev Academy, there are some people that have leadership positions and generally more powerful positions. It's not just them, it's all of us who are able mm. to, to contribute to that and equally celebrate those successes as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, a, it's, yeah, it's an important one to, to have. And if a part of our society, particularly our government and leadership, are not doing it, I mean, it's kind of, you know, they influence hugely on how we do things. Massively, yeah. yeah. Well, you mentioned earlier and used the phrase vulnerability and the act of vulnerability in a sense is seen by others as, as a strength. Whereas individually, we always see it as a sign of weakness, right? That's that Brené Brown stuff. You know, it's a really uh, enlightening kind of moment when I realised that. I say, yeah, when I feel vulnerable, I always feel weak, but other people think that's really strong. <laughs> Fascinating, and we tip that around, yeah, right? Yeah. But you've really lived in that, and I'm yeah, to, I'm it's to. awesome. Yeah. One, one question I had for you around, um, you, you know, we're talking about a lot of um, these big crises and. Just wondering at an individual level, we talk about mental health. Mm. We see this at Dev Academy, that the people walking through our doors are scared. Scared that what their parents did in their careers aren't what they can do because they'll have to learn multiple jobs or maybe their parents' jobs don't exist. They're scared because 
their parents and their grandparents had community support, friends and family that lived close by, that took care of them, that knew what they were doing, and they don't. How do you find in, in a crisis now the societal systems, in particularly in New Zealand, but also our, our basic systems like housing, like meaning and work and income, what, what's, what's the response, what's, that, what's, what's some of the stories around that? So social capital mm. is just so important in recovering from any crisis. Mm. Um, and I think back to my grandparents, mm. you know, and who'd been through the war, who'd been through the, pre- the depression, and just how they how they conducted themselves and, and how they cared for others, how others cared for them. You had this, like, really... They had a really strong fabric, connection, community. And I think for all that um, we talk about resilience these days, I think my nana actually knew it, <laughs> lived it, um, mm-hmm. was just such a, for me, a powerful role model in, in what that is. Um, and I think um, we have lost our way on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for your um, people coming through, if I was to say one thing, it would be that everything that is perhaps put in our way or everything that is, may seem really difficult or overwhelming or insurmountable is actually something that can strengthen us it can build us we can grow from and I think once you start seeing adversity that way um, as um, with that potential it can take some of that anxiety out of it I think the other thing is um, we all have more power than we think we do think somehow we have this sense of collective apathy or you know maybe it's a big challenges like climate change make us feel a little powerless sometimes or maybe it's because we have been living these lives where we're working so many hours and we're so exhausted all of the time right that we don't have the 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 time or the energy to maintain and make those connections but I think it starts if we start small and start with the individual I mentioned before about having your own personal board of well-being and resilience to help you perform. So um, choosing two or three, four people in your life who know you really well, who you trust, who you respect, who can give you a kick up the bum as well, (laughs) and saying to them, these, and, and we do this with these cards, but it's basically like, these are the messages I need to hear when I'm stressed. Um... Can you give them back to me when you see that I need them? Mm-hmm. Right? And I promise you, I will do that action. I will listen to that message. Mm-hmm. So it's actually about getting intentional about creating that support for yourself. You know, hope is not a method. <laughs> and also a method and a process can reduce the anxiety. Mm-hmm. So I think if we all started small like that, mm-hmm. um, you would see people feeling more secure um, because we can create those networks intentionally mm-hmm. and in a small and easy way. And that's one of the methods we teach with our cards. So, yeah. Interesting. We've, we've um, learned a huge amount. Um, so we were surprised. When, when we opened up our doors, 
it's most of the barriers in, in learning had nothing to do with technology and had everything mm-hmm. to do with basic things in life, you know, um, anxiety, panic attacks, um, physical mental health, um, uh, being bullied, uh, mm-hmm. being scared to, to be yourself, these sorts of things. We found mm-hmm. ourselves gravitating more and more towards how do we make people feel strong? And I mentioned that before, and being able to be strong in themselves. Mm. We very quickly realised that Māori had a really deep and natural awareness of self. Mm. And we found that a lot of our, um, uh, our, our understanding and our, what we'd understood through, through doing what we'd done actually was very clearly identified in Te Ao Māori. And through things like uh, building whanaungatanga and, um, and building support systems around people, we often, we, we didn't realise at the time, but when we started to look more deeply into mm. um, uh, Te Ao Māori, we realised that these systems were naturally there in most of the workings that was happening. Are you also seeing this? Are you, are you seeing that some of these structures in, in, uh, that you're putting in place are more natural for Māori, uh, that have been there for longer, that, um, yeah, I've just wondered. I think um, Te Whare Tapawha yeah. is a Māori model of well-being. So mm. this idea that your well-being is like a whare, it's like a house, okay. which has four walls. So, you know, taha hinenaro, like your psychological, your mental health, mm. taha tinana, your physical health, taha whānau, mm. uh, your social connectedness, um, taha wairua, right? your values, your sense mm. of identity, your place in the world. And that all of these walls need to be strong mm. for you to be a well and functioning mm. person. Mm. I love that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I often think about that. I think, oh, how are my walls looking? Do a bit of structural <laughs> assessment on myself. And, you know, um, often we have a bias towards certain walls. One might be kind yeah, of crumbling of over here. And I've, I've found... Um, that to be an incredibly powerful concept um, and um, way lovely, of thinking yeah. about that. What's it called again? Te whare tapawha, so the four walls mm. of the whare. I'm wondering as well, mm. to extend that question, because you've done quite a little bit of uh, international work, um, are you seeing similar stuff, not just in the Māoridom kind of stuff, but also when you travel in other indigenous cultures that you've yeah. had the honour of working with? Is it similar there, or is it different? Um, both. I think, like, you know, some of the the stoicism or, you know, that inability to be vulnerable is, is common, right? Like, you can mm. have the samurai complex in Japan or the John Wayne complex in the US or the, course, you know, yeah. here we've got kind of the, I don't know, I'm very wire, we can yeah. do everything. You just gotta you know, put get, another jersey on. Put another jersey on, get cold. yourself yeah. some number eight wire. Like so there are these cultural similarities right. um, in that respect. Um, I think working in South Asia, what I learnt was um, that people weren't surprised by a shock or a crisis or that it happened to them quite so much right right. because that is the nature and the way of life is to have these disasters have these adversities have these troubles right and that was part of how life is whereas 
I find in, in Western countries people can, and, and of course the, these are just generalisations, but they can have the sense like, but I mowed the lawns, I paid the insurance, I followed the rules, I've done everything right, Why? how could this happen to me? Yeah. And it can really throw their assumptions mm. because we have these fundamental assumptions about life and our trajectory in life mm, and how it should go. So a crisis just messes with people's assumptions in that sense and they think, oh, this is just something that happens to other people on TV because I did everything right and can get really thrown off psychologically mm. because of that, rather than a sense of, well, this is what life is about. And because of that, yeah. then, are those people that you mentioned who are, oh, I ex half expected this, maybe, um, are they quicker to recover? I think generally they have a whole bunch of other challenges. <laughs> gotcha. So I wouldn't say quicker, but um, they just have a different mindset. You're right. Yeah. Mindset, isn't it? I think that, that when when you were speaking, mm. I was like, it's you're right. It's a it's a mindset. It's a it's a perspective on on the world as well. Mm. I, I'd also assume that these are folks that have a stronger community and a closer community. It's not that world view plus my family unit. Mm. It's the family unit. It's my mm. wider family unit. It's my community and. Worldview is much more small in that sort of scenario, I imagine. I certainly, I can, yeah, I'm making assumptions, but that's what I'm, I'm, I'm imagining. Definitely, it's mm. that social capital, mm. you know. Mm. And that's a little bit what I was getting to also with the Resilient Address book. Mm. Because it's our relationships, the strength of our relationships and the diversity of our relationships mm. that get us through anything that comes our way in life, whether it's a disaster or a personal crisis mm. or, right, it's so is about that social capital and how we are intentional about building it. Mm. What are the biggest mistakes that people constantly do in disaster? Are there like a number of things that just oh, like... We have to... <laughs> yeah, I was getting excited. I've got a list of questions in my head for him. I was like... <laughs> Come to the end now, so I just want to thank you. Oh no, he's got the power. <laughs> you can ask me any time, I'm just quicker. You are quicker. That's, yeah. The, um, I can come to that, but I do have a question for you. Okay. I'm really curious about what you have learnt from 2020, what you ta have taken from what is question, a crazy year. Because we were talking learning, right? And that mm. made me think about sure. you and I know you think deeply on things so uh -huh. I'm curious. What have I learned from 2020? I've learned uh, that I really need this. Mm. So this was a result of my anxiety over lockdown and I was like how do I create a situation just to converse with the people that I don't get to converse with often enough and then create some also spread that conversation and so people feel connected. And how do I visually do that as well so that you're not cutting away and you're all seeing it? So how do I create this sense of community and belonging and conversa in conversation and through? So it's obviously this is a need for me and it, it does comes back to my kind of purpose, which I figured out only just like a couple of years ago, which is go through all my career now, which is that kind of giving people voice. Uh, that's kind of, if I look back, my first career was in global government and youth work 
Um, then I transitioned into like digital and online social media, helping people blog and do all that other stuff. So boom. Then I was like a business designer for a bit. And then I kind of speaker coach and in events mm. and creative producing and stuff like that. It's always about giving people voice, which is lovely now to figure out because whatever I then go on to do, I go, it doesn't matter what it is as long as I'm giving people that voice. And that's what I figured out. And this is what I really love to do is just enable people to have voice. So I'm cementing myself in with that now. Yeah. And I feel really bloody distant from Wales. Yeah. That's the other thing I learned mm. is where I, I, you always feel distant because we're on the arse end of the world being in New Zealand. So it's a long way back to the fatherland for me. I don't mean that in any derogatory sense. It's because uh, in Wales, the first line of the national anthem, Mahin Wadva Hare, is uh, the land of my fathers. Mm. Right? So that's why we call it the fatherland, not the motherland. It's not a kind of slight or anything. But didn't take it. Okay, cool. I just wanted to explain that before I get letters. <laughs> People right now. <laughs> Texting you. <laughs> Text, yeah, tweets or something. <laughs> something nasty. On exactly. The door like, I've always felt distance um, because of the scale and space stuff, but I always felt I could also hop on a plane at any time. Mm. But now I really feel hemmed in. Like, I can still go home, obviously, mm. but it would be much harder. I don't think I'd be coming back anytime soon. Mm. And it's that real distance now rather than an imagined distance, even though it was real. But mm -hmm. that's what I've learned. Mm. Good question. Thank you very much. Cool. Yeah. Anything has anything surprised you about yourself this year? I was really surprised. Uh, I'm only five foot six and a half. I thought I was six foot two. <laughs> In my mind, I always think I'm taller than I am. I'm like seriously, I'm only that big. No, I'm being cheeky. Uh, every day, every day is a surprise. Uh, I don't know. What surprised me? I don't know. How quickly, actually, you can spin something like this up and the generation of other people when they believe in it. And uh, this is a great time to give Jono a shout out because the magic thumb boy um, is, you know, when you spin things like this, you have an idea and then you share it with friends and they end up going, you can do it that way or you can do it the right way. And he gets involved and boom, it looks so much better. And I suppose that's a nice surprise how quickly people are willing to devote their time and yeah people see me but John is equally as much to blame for this <laughs> as to celebrate him for yeah. as well thank you Jono yeah. I think that the theme of our conversation is really stronger and better together yeah and everything we've discussed really yeah. it is again collaboration yeah mm. definitely like I, I'm really hungry to collaborate better with people and um, also noticing other people don't like to play as well, that's fine. Mm. You know, in some instances, that's cool as well. Yeah. But uh, it's also, they don't want to play in a context, right? Some people want to keep pushing things and keep trying things that are new. And then in a sense, because of that, it's dangerous for some people. Because like, oh, we've never done that before. I know, that's why I want to try it. Because you know, I've, ne I've never done this before. Let's give it a go, see what happens. Mm. And I suppose this comes back to what you were saying about iterating on every year, thinking about, okay, what do we learn from that? Mm. Could we now tweak that? Can we turn that up to seven and that down to four mm. and see what that creates? And being fearless in that, because a lot of people wouldn't. Once they get it close, they would stop mm. versus we're never done, which I 
get a sense from you we're always or you're always sorry trying to explore and change and be fluid enough to mm. that but so many organizations aren't yeah and yeah. service delivery and offerings aren't if you feel the same. Yeah, well, actually, I was thinking about that that comment there, but also, you know, you mentioned that we're together and stronger together and working together. But often, you know, a lot of the a lot of the structures around us are not together structures. They're individual structures. Mm. They're performance structures being better than the rest structures. You know, mm. a lot of the work. Um, so I'm. I run an education business, but I'm also very interested in in, in housing, um, banking, and they fit very closely together, and, and mm. food. And um, and when I lo look at solving these problems or, or what would I do in these environments, I constantly come up to competition, finance, wealth. Um, for example, I run another um, a company with ants, and we've looked at building social housing and how we would do this. and. And you know we've 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 done this once and it and it and it failed. Um, well, it failed in the fact that we didn't build houses, but we learned a huge amount from it. Mm. Um, but what what we came up to constantly was all of these things were built for people to be able to become wealthy, built for there to be competition. Um, you know there was nothing to do. You know there's actually no legislation around. Well, maybe a little bit, but around the 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 right for healthy living. Mm. I mean, certainly the rules and regulations mean that your house has got to be weather tight and healthy, but the access to it, like yeah. we, have a, we don't have a commodities market, we have a housing market and mm. everyone's in it. And the fact that you can't buy a house has got very little to do with fluctuating populations and everything to do with the fact that mum and dad and a lot of people run big business in our housing market. Yeah. And I'm thinking about solving that, but if you go out to market to to, to generate funds to do this work, you come up against the FMA, you come up against banks, you come up against a need for a certain amount of return. Um, you mm. come up, you come up against a whole lot of rules, which I get why are there, but they don't serve me. They don't mm. serve me in being able to challenge the status quo that's out there. What they're aimed to serve is me making money, which actually is not what I'm aiming for. I'm aiming to really reduce the cost to make it accessible. Um, so I'm, talking, I'm thinking about this working together, and I love it. I'm also thinking that a lot of our systems, society, is, has had many years of industrious age capitalism mm. aiming to not work, not do that, Absolutely. to make big differences. Mm. So I'm constantly coming back to how do we build these new models? Mm. How do you, you know... Um, how do you create something that's more attractive? Because it can't be shittier. It's got to be better, right? <laughs> yeah. Good point. Like, yeah. It's got to be attractive for you know the powers that be to go, ooh. But how are they going to give away money, power, mm. to be able to go, ooh, and it's got to be something attractive there. And I'm really thinking about what is identity, the identity that we have of this power? Why do we put your your Bill Gates and your Elon Musks out there because it's kind of exciting, but also well, they're really fucking wealthy mm. and they're really powerful. Well, how do we value the other people? I don't know. I can't think of anyone. The Mother Teresa's. Yeah. The well, just the Michelle nurse Obama's, who goes in know. every time and, and now is mentoring mm. other younger nurses, right? That's Boom. It. Uh, there, there does seem a lack of literacy about just celebrating the right things in our society. Yeah. Yeah. How do we make it really cool to be kind of small in our current environment? 
But well, you've got kids, right? Yeah. A few of them, are you? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I know you've got a young man. The idea of like youth today and what they celebrate and want to be when they're older, as I'm sure you know, is celebrities, right? Who do nothing. <laughs> they're just famous for being famous. Whereas when, I'm not going to make an assumption, when I was younger, not we were younger, there was more of an attraction to people who were doing stuff and achieving things you know, an action-based thing, mentality. But again, can we go further now? Well, now we know it's not just the footballers who we need to clap and go, yeah, that's kind of cool. Okay, you need to be fit and you've got to have a level of skills and tenacity to be at that level. But we are celebrating the wrong people, I think. And that could help with some of your dynamics in your brain about, well, how can we go about shifting the story here? Well, I stopped sh celebrating the people who are now have five properties and doing very well and now bought more properties. It's like, yeah, could we celebrate other aspects of that, that they stopped buying properties and now are helping other people? Mm. You know, that's the people we want to find, mm. you know, because I'm sure they're out there. Yeah, I'm sure. sure there are a couple of people who have like independently wealthy now and going, yeah, this hasn't brought me happiness. Mm. Mm. Because we all know it doesn't. And then, what can, how can we help uh, restabilize yeah. that's, the, the issues? That's Maybe. one calibration that I think we need now. Uh -huh. The other one is how do you create a person that never wants that, that always wants that other thing, that always wants the to be the the nurse or the teacher or mm. whatever it is. I think I I don't think you were saying this, but let's be clear making a huge amount of money and then having the power over people to spend it mm -hmm. and choose where it goes, I don't agree with. Mm -hmm. But um, having a huge amount of money because that's what you were told to aim for, have that realization and go, oh shit, it was all a bit of a lie. Yes. Or, wow, oh, what do I do now? I mean, that's different. And I think um, I see two, two frames of mind there. So I, yeah. I do see two quite different people. And the latter person is the one that I'm like, oh, yeah, I've got a lot of time for you. The More other one is like, it's a little bit tokenistic. It's still a power game. It's mm -hmm. still you're in, deeply in control. And it's often, um, it's not wholehearted. It's not wholesome and, and, yeah. and so on. My, the, the kids thing is interesting. I think there's hope. I mean, I'm always looking at generations. You can do lots with generations, right? Yes. Because you get out old thinking, unfortunately, we're living too long. But anyway, let's put that aside. Um, <laughs> yeah. But still, um, yeah, my, my, I'm looking at a 12-year-old who was painting T-shirts about climate and getting very excited, spending his own time and money on doing this. Wow. And I think, yeah, there is, there is hope. And I, I also think, when does that hope die? How do we keep that going? How do mm. we foster that? And I look at the school system and we've, we've, we've looked at what they're aiming for. And I look at the way in which we fill kids up with information and then measure it. And I'm like, oh, does that serve our climate? And I'm, 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 I'm not sure it does. But I think there is a lot of, again, I go back to the system that's out there. System, yeah. We really need to, 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 to make some big changes. We need to have these hard conversations. We need our, our, the, the, the people with power, from politicians to business owners to privileged people to everyone to come together and say, okay, should we take off the veils? Let's take off our masks. Let's take off our power. Let's mm. all sit around the table and, and do this. I'm not sure how to do it, but I think actually it comes down to whānau and our, and our communities looking over the fence and actually investing in those closer communities. And I'm sure when you see that from your disaster approach, you do see resilience. Mm. 
I'm not sure I know exactly how to do it, but I'm, I certainly know that I'm definitely looking for at, at Māori because I, I believe they've got, they're already there with the way in which uh, they look out on, on, on life and they, the way in which they look, uh, walk through life mm-hmm. looking behind to see what's being done, mm-hmm. to, take, to take a cognitive approach there. But I'm, I'm excited about taking part in a, in a more slower pace, mm. um, in a more community sort of approach to, to how we sort of go mm. about things. It's not chess beating rah-rah entrepreneurial stuff. It's actually, it's just kind of wholesome, mm. basic mm. stuff that we can all do. There's nothing special about it apart from having small conversations yeah. um, in a wholehearted, wholesome sort of way. Well, we had Paul in earlier from Zealandia, yeah. Paul yeah. Atkins. Yeah. Uh, it was a great lad, but they have a 500-year plan for Zealandia. So what was missing there in everything that you said was I was waiting for you to say, and also just thinking generations ahead, sure. you know, which again is that Maori thing, and uh, I really like that approach because then if we do think generations deep, and it was the seventh generation stuff in America that was a thing for a while, but, you know, even just thinking 500 years out, what are we going to do today with... Are we going to buy another house? Are we going to do that? Mm. That would, I think, really guide better decisions uh, going forward, mm. even though the climate change cycle. No, 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 it's related, I think, that it is about looking back to look forward, mm. whether that's in our own lives, right, and looking back and reflecting on our experiences and how we individually learn and improve, but also mm. within our communities, within our within our whānau, within our society, you know, to take the best of the wisdom from the past, perhaps with some of the best tech and tech developers of the now, and look at how we mix that up to create what we need for that 500-year plan. Isn't that wicked if we could do that together as a city, as an entity like Dev Academy or Hummingley, as a sector, you know, like what are all the best things? And just think a lot deeper into the future. Um, I think we'd have just better questions, even if we don't have better answers mm-hmm. at this point. Just have better questions, which I'm a big fan yeah. of. And, and I've seen that within, you know, the best crisis leaders, in my mm. opinion, are the ones that ask um, the right questions of the right people at the right time. Mm. Right. Mm. You know, and I've seen people do that with such skill, mm. and I've really taken that questioning um, to heart. Also, the ones that make really good decisions take some time. Often they don't have a lot of time, but just take some time, whether that's a few moments, might be a weekend, to stop, think, and reflect. Right? Mm. And, and that's where really good decisions can come from, too. So, Create some space. Yeah. You know, even is, if it is for an hour or something. To what you're saying mm. as well. Mm. So. Mm. That's beautiful. So I'm appreciative of your time and don't want to bleed too much. No one's had chocolate yet apart from me, but I'm just saying that. <laughs> so I'm going to ask a kind of, here we go, and I'm going to ask you a question as soon as you put that in your mouth. I'll have to ask Elizabeth now first. Good chocolate. Good chocolate. I should have done that. <laughs> now I've got to ask I thought, you. I we were done. You can, and then, <laughs> what I was going to say, uh, leading on that better questions, uh, what is one of, the, uh, one of the best questions, or what is a good question? that's been asked of you recently? The, um, one of the, the best questions that came to me from talking to someone who um, was an amazing leader mm. in disasters, um, and she had had a serious mental health episode. 
right, which happens quite yeah. often. Um, so she couldn't work anymore and she was at home and um, was trying to recover personally, um, could no longer lead her team. And she, she looked at me and she said, Elizabeth, what is scary about this is I reckon my team were about three or four weeks behind me. Ooh, right? Yeah, and then I thought, hmm. So what this then led to me thinking about, and the question that came from that is that actually we lead others to where we ourselves are at. Right? Mm. So if we are in a place of balance, we're in a place where we've got our strategies in place, we're in a place where we have that social capital, we have those principles, and we have that greater perspective, we lead others to that place. Mm. If we are burnt out, if we are cynical, if we are exhausted, if we are unwell, if we are anxious, we lead others to that place mm. too. So at the anchoring question of 2020 has been for me the sense of where am I at and where am I leading others to? Because as I was saying that this year has been really huge for Hummingly. You know, we support individuals, organisations, we're working across different countries, and I have to keep anchored and centred on this question so that I can be sure of where we are leading others to. So wow, that's, that's mm-hmm. my question. That's lovely. Great answer. Yeah, yeah thank you. I hadn't thought of it in that way. Yeah, it was ju- mm-hmm. it was this woman I was talking to. It's yeah, great what you extract from that, and she had the insight. wisdom and insight, you yeah. know, to reflect backwards and go, ooh. Yeah, you know. which is this looking back to looking for yeah. business, you know. Mm-hmm. We're so busy and chaotic, and, and we're having one disaster after the other. People are at the red line before a crisis even mm-hmm. comes. Like you were saying, that yeah. space yeah. is missing to mm-hmm. ask those good questions. But mm-hmm. I'm curious about yours. <laughs> I, have, I have two questions. Okay. Because I'm greedy. <laughs> um, but they go hand in hand. Perfect. Um, uh, COVID, um, this was before COVID, really highlighted to me, we're looking at um, our family. I live with um, um, my, my wife and, and three kids, and we live with my, my two parents who are both 80. And... Um, and I ask myself, how safe am I in a, in, a, in a pandemic? And from my perspective, I I think about the team, I think about Dev Academy, I think about the ability to support those people, the ability to support the students. And at home, I think about my parents' health and, and, and so on. So I ask, how safe are they in their position? Mm. Not... Their well, not their not their physical um, safety only, but also from their perspective, how safe do they feel? Mm. Okay. And I think for me, that has a profound impact and is very different to how safe do I think they are? Mm. Because let's change it up. Let's put the COVID to the side, and here I am, the CEO of a company. How safe am I? Well, I'm at the top of a company I founded, I've been there from day one, and I'm a straight white guy. I've got a lot of privilege, I've had education, I've come from money, I've got perspective, I've kind of like, I've got everything. I'm not six foot two, I'm also five foot six. <laughs> but That's still, I've got a long back. Um, 
But what's interesting is I've started to say to people, you know, how, did you, how safe do you feel in your organisation? I said, oh, I'm great. Mm. How safe does everyone feel? How safe do your women feel? Mm. How safe do Māori feel? How safe do your gender fluid people feel? And often the most clear answer is usually, oh, I think, oh, I don't know. I've never asked. How would I find that out? You know, I've, oh, is that something I, you know, they don't quite say, is that something I, I need to know? Is that important? But they're kind of thinking, mm. is that relevant? But when you look at, at our community, our work plays a massive role in that. Yeah, and, I, and I ask people to spend a lot of time at Dev Academy, you know, up to 40 hours a week. Mm. And I think, well, what place am I to really enhance, not extract? I want to be really symbiotic with, with the people working at Dev Academy. So safety for me is incredibly important. Mm. And not for me, but for people that aren't like me. Because probably in most environments, I will be safe. The moment I walk down the street, it's been built in my image, sure. not in most others. So these sorts of things I'm thinking about. So the questions that I, I think are most important is how safe do you feel? Mm. And how, how safe do people not like me feel? And to really ask those questions of them and to see if you can create a dialogue in which over time you actually get to the real answer. Because often the answer is that of safety. You cannot be vulnerable unless you trust that person. Mm. If you don't look, feel, sound like that person, you won't be trusted until you really build that relationship. If you have to implore the services of others that look like um, the people that you're talking to, then do this, but you must find that answer. Mm. That's what's provoked me recently. Boom. Nice. Yeah. And from that place, people can learn. Whether mm. it's at Dev Academy, whether it's at our systems, whether it's our political levels, you know, and that's the learning that we need to look back to go forward. Mm. Thank you for that. That was lovely. Yeah. What about you? Oh, you just caught me. I was going, so thank you very much for your time. <laughs> no, 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 we're both like, on this. Take, take the chocolate away from yeah. It's all yours. I breathed in and everything just for that, brother. So someone asked me recently, surely it should be getting better. And that sounds awful now, like I've got a rash or something. <laughs> <laughs> Should be getting better now. Let's keep putting the talc on. It's what? a safe Awkward. place. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> I wasn't meaning that out, so by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> From a perspective, it was a big piece of work I'm working on for the last uh, number of years. And someone is like, and I was like just off on one about it. As you do, you know, chatting to people and you share like your frustrations. And, and uh, a mentor, a friend of mine was like, well, surely it should be getting better by now. Like easier probably is a better thing. It should be easier by now. You've been doing it for a number of times. I'm like, ah, and there lies in the truth right there, that statement of that question, sorry. And then I, I after the conversation, I've been like ruminating on it. And I was like, oh, I've already got the answer because I tell other people this constantly, which is, you know, a no is a powerful yes to something else. Uh, it is really, you know, you're not saying no just to one thing, you're saying yes to like, oh, I'm not going to practice that, so I'm going to create space for my family or whatever, you know, it's, you're always saying no, which is a yes to something else. So that's really formed my thinking going forward about these projects in my head, about where am I devoting my time and should it be easier? Not because I want an easy life, that's different, but over time you must reflect and go, well, you know, if the shoe isn't fit in, Try another pair of shoes on, right? And and 
try something different. So that's one of the best questions I've been asked recently. Surely it should be getting better or easier by now. And that's informed me to think a little bit differently, rather than just complaining. I like it. <laughs> of course, maybe I should say no. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good answer. Good question. Well, yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, people. Thank you for your time, your energy, your openness for being together and good humans. That was Creative Welly, episode 11. Thank you for listening. Sorry, I'm still doing my Barry White impression, although some of you might dig it. My name's DK, and big shout-out to John O'Tucker again for producing the video podcast over at Empire Films, and thanks to Alex Matthews for hosting us at X Equals. Please subscribe in the usual ways, and we'll see you next year in 2021 for the next episodes of Creative Welly. Keep having courageous conversations with bold humans.